You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me, and we are almost at the end of 2020. We are going to make it. I think we're going to make it. Hang on. We can do it. There is a lot going on in this week's show. First, as promised, we're having a conversation about the new antitrust lawsuits filed against Facebook. Last week, we brought Mike Isaac in from the New York Times to talk to us about those suits and also a brief foray into Mike's new career as a gamer. And of course, we recorded that conversation before Google faced its newest antitrust lawsuit from Texas and other states. So we'll have to come back and talk about those lawsuits in a future episode. And I'm worried that we're not going to be able to ever keep up with the antitrust lawsuits, but they're going to go on for a long time. So we will do our best. Then we also had a group chat with Oliver Darcy from CNN and Charlie Warzoff from the New York Times. These are two of my favorite experts on right-wing conservative media slash social media and the symbiosis that world has with Trump. I've had Charlie and Oliver on twice before in the beginning of the Trump administration. when We were all trying to get a handle on this world. And now I feel like we know way too much about this world because it's our world. Uh, then, of course, Charlie argues that we actually don't know a lot about this world because we don't consume it most of the time. It's a whole alternate parallel world. Anyway, you'll hear that conversation in just a minute. One programming note here, Charlie, for some reason, lives in Montana. I guess he lives in Montana because he likes it there, but he wanted to find a more remote place to spend time in, and that remote place has very bad Wi-Fi, and so midway through our conversation, Charlie disappeared. But Oliver stuck around, and we are grateful to both of them for coming on. Okay, here are all of our conversations with Mike and Charlie and Oliver. Talking to Mike Isaac, New York Times, my fellow colleague. He's also a part-time uh, game review guy now, but, but <laughs> for a living, he, he covers Facebook and a lot of Silicon Valley. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Last week, the federal government, almost every state in the country, sued Facebook, accusing them of antitrust violations. We all knew this was coming. I think people were surprised that the FTC wants to break Facebook up. They want them to spin out WhatsApp and Instagram. And we'll talk about the merits of the case, but immediately sort of for the near term this is a case that will spin out for years and years what changes yeah. and doesn't change day to day at facebook sure well you know i think to your first point people were surprised at the level of aggressiveness um because it was always kind of rumored that they might uh ask for a spin-off of these companies but it also was kind of tough because they had they had sort of not asked for this years ago so that was a, a kind of big reach but i think you know facebook is really positioning it as 
you know, it's day to day, same as usual for us. We're, you know, not in the wrong. Uh, our companies uh, operate very closely with one another. They share the same infrastructure. So um, we're we're going to keep doing what we do. And I think that the main thing that changes is Mark Zuckerberg sent an internal memo out basically saying, please shut up internally about this and don't talk. Don't talk Stop to talking to Mike Isaac. Exactly. Yeah. Don't post. Because, you know, these tech companies have this like internal sharing culture and this is not something they want people to share about inside. So what may or may not be a coincidence, about what, maybe a week before uh, the suit came, uh, Facebook announced it was doing a billion dollar acquisition of something called Customer. Yeah. Um, over the last year or so, they've gone out of their way to integrate WhatsApp and Instagram more tightly to Facebook, yep. both on the back end and on the front end, if when you open up Instagram, it says this is a Facebook company. Yep. Um, let's 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 carve those things into two different things. Uh, them going ahead and, and spending a billion dollars or, or whatever the the actual dollar amount is on a, on an acquisition as they're being investigated. What's the signal there? That's I mean, it was a really aggressive move. I was surprised they were going to do so. Customer is this like back end. It's very wonky SaaS software for um, doing sort of like Zendesk, doing customer service stuff for um, uh, small businesses and stuff like that. And so it goes into their WhatsApp strategy of sort of um, angling towards small businesses, people doing purchases over WhatsApp in countries around the world. But the, really, the it's more to me shows kind of the gall behind um, will it, being willing to go ahead with a billion dollar acquisition when you're under some of the most heightened scrutiny of your company's M&A strategy and its existence is pretty gall, uh, galling. And, but also it kind of says that they don't think they're doing anything wrong. I also think that it's an acquisition that's not directly in the social networking sort of realm, which I think gives them cover. Like if it was you know, a house party or or whatever, like some sort of other social, or if it was TikTok, so let's say, like, which they probably couldn't afford, that probably would not have had them go for it. But this sort of seems like, all right, we're, we're, we're operating as normal because we didn't do anything wrong. Basically. Yeah, and I want to talk about the definition of a social network in a, in a minute. But uh, and then the idea of tying WhatsApp and Instagram to get what they've been doing in plain sight and saying they've been doing. Uh, folks have speculated for a while, like, you know, if they tie these things together, it makes them that much harder to split off. I'm assuming there's some of that logic, but what's the, what's sort of the operational logic of of mashing these th things together? I yeah, so this has been a sort of slow motion process over the past two years. It's become re it became initially very contentious to uh, to folks like Kevin Systrom and Mike uh, Krieger, the founders of Instagram, who did not want the, the networks to be pushed together. It was contentious to the WhatsApp founders, who both left in a huff because they basically said that Mark Zuckerberg reneged on a lot of the promises he made. They decided when he to spend, them. and they, they went ahead and promptly. One of them spent a bunch of time uh, criticizing Facebook, and the other one is is collecting air cooled <laughs> Porsches. It's a funny thing to say. I mean, live your best life, man. But <laughs> so, so what is the? And you know, Mark Zuckerberg could sort of promise these things we run on independently. It makes sure. I, I assume when you buy something, you do want to integrate it, no matter what you say. But what is the yeah. benefit to Facebook? To, to knitting these things together. Yeah, I think, well, there's a few things. One, I think you're right, like, to think that the parent company won't touch you forever is probably a little naive if you're being acquired. So go into something with your eyes wide open. But also, I mean, there's two things. I think the way that Zuckerberg is posturing is we're doing this for the user experience. Um, in the background, we've always been sort of connected through the ad tech infrastructure, through the, like, the hosting infrastructure. So in a way... 
our companies have been more integrated than people know. And that's why we sort of brand the buy Facebook stuff on Instagram and WhatsApp that you're seeing now. But I think there's, there is a logic to if we sort of mold our, uh, mash all of our networks together and make them sort of interoperable, what they called internally interoperability, it makes it A, more difficult and B, less likely, I would say, for them to be easily broken up or spin off. So right now they're in the middle of this thing um, called interoperability where they're asking you to um, agree to let your Facebook Messenger and, and Instagram connect to each other so you can sort of message each other. So ideally, you know, they all become like sort of tightly integrated, tightly wound. You see it as more of one network with three or four different names. And, you know, ostensibly, maybe it becomes harder to to turn that off at some point if they have to. But I, I'm still a little hesitant to say that's fully the plan because I feel like if you can mash something together, you can, they, they're the, some of the smartest people in the world can figure out how to take it apart. At the if eventually time. the court says you got to do it, then. Yeah, you, they, they can't just say no. I mean, I don't, do I don't it. think so. <laughs> Um, so the focus has been on on the, them demanding the, them saying, "Look, you you bought you bought WhatsApp and you bought Instagram because you thought they were going to be competitors." Facebook's answer to that is, "Well, look, they're much bigger now. Through <laughs> right. them, um, <laughs> uh, but you know, but, but again, this has always sort of been plain sight. You and I have covered this stuff forever. It was always yeah. clear, like, oh, when they saw something that was growing fast, they often did want to buy it." We were also aware, and this got much less coverage, that a lot of times Facebook would come to a smaller company and maybe they would encourage them to grow on the platform, um, but maybe they would turn that sort of access on or off. Or more frequently, they'd go talk to a company and maybe they'd just buy all their engineers or they'd buy the company and shut it down. Um, Is the government case also looking at those kind of actions? So my understanding is that they've spent the past, you know, 18 months, 24 months, talking to not only their biggest acquisition, but all of the companies they've ever acquired, basically. Like almost all of the, almost like any of the little sort of smaller startups that you've never heard of that have sort of been absorbed into Facebook. And I think that the strategy there was to figure out what types of questions Facebook asked, how did they sort of approach them? What did it look like? Was it like an early sort of Warning, was it a mafioso feel like oh, it would be a shame if you, you know, if you grew nice too big you for your there. riches? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think, I think, um, and there's a guy who's very smart called uh, Tim Wu. He's a professor who's really close to all the studies, uh, studies that really pushing for the, the breakup and that tech is too big. He's saying what you need to prove is just this history of acquiring to essentially kill, uh, kill off or snuff out your competitors. Facebook's argument says, Look, we didn't know any of these companies were going to be as big as they are the, and, and ostensibly wouldn't have been as big as they are uh, without us. And I don't think you can really I don't think that's an argument you can really understand. I think face, uh, Instagram was growing like a weed. Uh, WhatsApp was already very large at the time they acquired them. So I don't know. I think I think what it'll be tough for the government to prove. But on them is, is there enough internal evidence over the past 10, 10, 15 years that showed Mark Zuckerberg's history of acquisitions were meant to kill off any sort of competition they had. And I, don't, I just don't know what they have uh, discovery-wise, evidence-wise. The, the government's case talks about consumers not having choice within social network, and they keep sort of uh, focusing on the idea of, of a social network. Yeah. And to me, that makes sense if it's 2010 and, and social networking is this new thing, and there's Twitter and there's Facebook and there used to be MySpace. Yep. But one, we have a bunch of other things that you could reasonably call 
call social networks. And then my just sense of the way Facebook views the world is the social network part is not that important to them. What they're concerned about is people's time and attention and how they can monetize it. And so, you know, they're pointing to a parlor and a TikTok as competitors, but you could just as easily point to iMessage or Xbox Live, right? I mean, anything where I'm going to, and by the way, Facebook spending time trying to get into gaming. Um, by focusing on social networking and trying to sort of say, this is a specific industry and you're monopolizing social networking, is that short-sighted on the part of the government when they could make a bigger argument? Or is it actually that's the way to focus it and say, this is a discrete thing and you own that discrete space? I think it, I think the government knows... I mean, because Facebook's argument, I think, has merit, right? I think there's... Um, you know, how, how much time do we spend on different apps in our phone? I would argue that, you know, iMessage is probably one of my most social apps, even if even if we didn't grow up thinking that texting was a social network necessarily. I do think, but I think the government's specifically defining social networking in the terms of, let's say, 2010 or whatever, or, you know, the way you and I thought of it when it was first coming out and when we started writing about it, is with the express intent of making their case as narrow as possible on and def, you know setting the terms of how this is going to be viewed i think facebook is probably smart to sort of broaden it um but a lot of their arguments a lot of the time this goes back to strategy that um nick clegg their vp of policy is doing as well as mark in these public speeches a lot of it is basically them saying, if you look at the entire world, we have no such lock on on social. There's a zillion different competitors across a zillion different countries that could be killing us at any minute. And um, you need to sort of broaden your your idea of what social networking is. So I'm curious if that sort of holds up in front of or at trial, if they ever make it to trial, or if this sort of narrower definition, uh, you know, works to, to the government's advantage. Uh, a couple quick questions. Uh, the FTC this week, uh, a couple days ago, said, oh, in addition to this lawsuit, we're also asking basically every social company <laughs> for mo- a lot of information about data privacy. Um, that was interesting. Is, is that connected, disconnected from the lawsuit? I mean, it seems like they're spending a lot of time in dis- December. December's a very busy month for the FTC. What's going on there? <laughs> totally. No, I, I, it's funny you mentioned that because I flagged it internally. I was like, huh, and look at this list of companies. Apple's name didn't show up on there, which is interesting. I wonder if the lobbying efforts of them, you know, if you consider it what they're doing, a social network, or at least like some of their app store practices, um, why didn't they show up? So uh, I don't, I short answer is I don't know if they're connected, but I do think that there's so much activity internally, whether it's the DOJ, the FTC, the state's AGs sort of going after tech. And now because it's a bipartisan, there's hunger for it on a bipartisan level. Like, you, you know, back in the day, it was basically Democrats kind of being worried about it, but not, not Republicans not caring. Now, both parties, while they're worried for different reasons, still have maybe a nascent feeling that big tech can be bad in some ways, and some of these cases may be good. So I think because there's more red meat politically there, uh, you're going to see more activity about it. Uh, meta question. Uh, last month, all t- times of flat circle, I can't remember the dates, but recently, <laughs> uh, the DOJ sued Google. Um, that generated an enormous amount of attention, it seemed like at the time, in part because we all knew it was coming. Um, now you've got the FTC suing Facebook and asking yeah. for a breakup explicitly. And for whatever reason, it didn't seem like that one made as much noise. Any idea if there's a difference there in sort of the magnitude of the cases or just happened to be sort of what was in the news cycle that day? 
I think I think I'm I'm wondering if it's I mean the Google one is focused on search mm-hmm. and perhaps that case is I mean it, it would be very hard for me to get, make a case around AltaVista or other big competitors in the U.S. sort of being a war a threat to them or whatever. So I I, I honestly don't know. I think maybe it's just the slam dunkitude of the case, perhaps. Uh, um, but also. Um, I wonder, you know, I just I said there's appetite for going after big tech, but I do wonder what level of support the Facebook case is going to have um, broadly from folks, you know, or do they I think there's a lot of people out there who don't even know that Instagram is owned by Facebook or same, and Americans in general don't rapidly use WhatsApp compared to, say, other folks outside of the outside of the country. So that'll be like curious to me going forward, like what people if people care about it, how much they care and if they think this is a big enough consumer issue for them to kind of support this case against them. All right. I said last question, but I'm going to sneak one last one. <laughs> Dude, in. I, you, I saw you join the chorus, people who played Cyberpunk 27, <laughs> 2077 and said, I don't like it. So um, <laughs> since you are now a, a pro-am gamer, pro gamer, what are you going to spend your time playing over the break? Oh, my God. Well, so I've been complaining nonstop about Cyberpunk, but I've also been playing it day and night for the past five days. All right. That sounds, so, sounds like a tech reporter. I hate <laughs> this thing that I spend all my time doing. <laughs> so that's probably more of that, basically. That or Assassin's Creed Valhalla is been kind of fun. All right. Noted. Mike, Come to great, me for your great, kids' questions. <laughs> great to see you on the Zoom. I hope to see you in real life again someday soon. Be well. Thanks, Sam. Thanks again to Mike Isaac for coming in. Seems just like a few years ago that I worked with Mike and now I have to Zoom with him if I want to talk to him. Next up in a minute, we're going to hear from Charlie Warzel from the New York Times and Oliver Darcy from CNN. But first, a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Charlie and Oliver, thank you for joining me over the internet. I appreciate it. Uh, this is, we were just reminding ourselves the third conversation we've had uh, since the Trump era kicked off. And I, I want to start by just going back in time. When we started having this conversation, it was the Trump conservative media ecosystem and how do we understand it. Uh, it was this novelty. And it strikes me that it's obviously well past novelty stage because we're, we're four years into it. But also it seems like it's not really a discrete thing anymore. It kind of is media. It kind of is social media. But let me keep going backwards. What was what was something that that when we were looking at the beginning of this era in 2016, uh, early 2017, what 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 did we get right when we were sort of predicting 
what was coming down the, the, the barrel for us uh, in terms of understanding what was going to happen to media generally and, and how the conservative media ecosystem was going to work. Let's pat ourselves on the back first. So I, I went back and I, and I looked at um, the piece that I wrote like two days after the inauguration about um, sort of the deplorable, which was the pro-Trump media gathering the, the, on the eve of the inauguration. And I was just sort of like scrolling through that. And, and I think it was pretty clear. And I think that most people pretty much got this, that, you know, Donald Trump basically gave voice and, uh, and, and extended himself as a platform for a lot of these people who started out as like, you know, influencers or content marketers, uh, and became pundits and basically built his own, you know, uh, pro Trump, not even really right wing, but pro Trump media ecosystem, um, to tell his story. And he was sort of both the, you know, the assignment editor and the amplifier and, uh, of all of it. And I, and I think that, I mean, that largely like that story held uh, that, that, that dynamic held and, and continues to hold today. It is, a, it is an ecosystem that like, you know, that doesn't really serve the Republican party as much as it serves Donald Trump and his interests, but also his ego, like more than anything else, it is, it is something that is built for, for him. And, and that it is basically, you know, I, I wrote at the time that, it, and, and, and people like, um, like Mike Cernovich told me that this was a, uh, this was a parallel institution to like, say, you know, the times or CNN. And, and that's really like what we're seeing. It is like, it, runs parallel it does not intersect except for maybe on occasion on twitter but it has its own facts its own you know truths that it holds dear uh that don't seem to be all that tethered in reality and i think like we have watched them you know create their own scandals ignore scandals that you know the mainstream media has has been you know crowing about for for four years and it's all kind of come to a head with this, you know, rigged election electoral college uh, fantasy and conspiracy, uh, which is still playing out despite, you know, as uh, I guess it was yesterday as we're talking now, um, the electoral college certifying the results for Biden. So I, I think that has helped. Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell has has now certified the election as well. And people um, are angry and, and they're angry at him now. You know, you have Mark Levin, and, and others on the on the fringe right saying we need new leadership in the Senate. Um, so it's, you know, there's no, it's never ending with these people. I, I do want to go back to the, the deplorable in case you didn't case. This was an actual gathering of, of you know, the Mike Cernoviches of the world. And he's someone I've been thinking a lot about in, in advance of this conversation. I haven't heard from or of Mike Cernovich for a long time. Um, I haven't seen or heard of Milo until I was looking at, there's a Twitter account that um, um, tweets out uh, screen grabs from Parlor, where I guess Milo has gone. And so it seems like there was a cast of characters that seemed influential and important back in 2016. And I don't hear or see of them anymore. And what I'm wondering is that presumably they've been deplatformed and kicked off Twitter and kicked off YouTube. Do they still matter or are they replaced with another cast of characters? I think that the one thing we've seen, and I'll try to answer your question with, with this answer, um, over the past several years 
is how the fringe on the right has really sort of unified with the mainstream right in that like Alex Jones, for instance, is no longer platformed anywhere, but he's not on YouTube. He's not on Facebook. He's not on Twitter. Right. The same sort of stories that he would be advancing, the deep state, the rigged election, the vaccines are, are, are maybe not good for you and don't wear masks. That's now being amplified by Fox News, right? That's now being amplified by Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and so on and so forth. So I, I think what you've seen is maybe these cast of characters that were on the fringes are not, you know, it's, it's not as focused on them as much, um, the Alex Joneses and the Milos of the world, but the whole right-wing media ecosystem has been pulled toward them. And it's now centered around things that Mike Cernovich would be would have been making on Twitter, the points he would have been making, which were once considered fringe. They're now they're now the heart of the GOP. Um, so perhaps there's less focus on on him now because you have someone like Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson making the same arguments, and they just have bigger microphones. So the ideas and the ideology uh, have permanence, even if the the characters, I was also thinking of like a Breitbart, which was enormously important at the beginning of the Trump administration is now seems mm-hmm. to be a non-player. Um, those things can come and go, but but sort of the the ecosystem itself remains. Is that a they, fair way of putting I think, it? I think these outlets, Breitbart, was willing to defend Trump on anything in the, initially when others were not, right? You used to have people like Megyn Kelly on Fox or even Bill O'Reilly and, and some of the others who would challenge the president and Breitbart was always loyal. Mike Cernovich was always loyal. Now you have a whole media ecosystem and it's mainstream you know, conservative news organizations that are willing to defend the president on something as absurd as the fact that he did not you know, lose the November election when, it, when it's obvious, obvious he did. And so I, I guess... Why go to Breitbart when you can see the same, you have the same content coming from all these other sources? It just, it, it, I, I think that news organizations in particular even don't even look to them as much as, as like this is what the pro-Trump media is saying because you have more prominent media personalities with much bigger platforms saying those exact same things. I, I hope that, I think that might answer your question a little bit. I don't know if Charlie agrees. I I, so I, I I agree that that those narratives have been adopted by sort of the the mainstream right wing media, um, and has also created its own like there's always sort of imbued really smaller scrappy like you know OAN kind of uh, upstarts with with more uh, importance. But the other thing too about some of the influencers, some of the the characters that were really really prominent in the 2016 election run up and you know for the the last couple of years is that i think as this has been covered by people like the two of us but also by tons of other of our peers who have done a great job over the last 4 years there's there's an understanding and a, and a nuance of, of how to cover this system without sort of like elevating these people. I mean, I think our previous discussions have talked quite a bit about the uh, those characters like Mike, like others, and I think that there's been sort of a an uh, an understanding that you know covering them and sort of you know n- potentially uncritically giving them a platform sometimes or just or just you know amplifying their their ideas directly is is not a is not the best way to do this. It only sort of you know gives them the attention that they desire. And I think that you know whether it's the sort of the social media companies doing the deplatforming work, but also there's been this um, 
you know, uh, the scholar at Syracuse, uh, Whitney Phillips, wrote this this um, big sort of um, study in 2018, I believe, called The Oxygen of Amplification. And I know a lot of people, it was about how you amplify trolls and people like that. And that was very influential to a lot of journalists, including myself, in thinking about different ways to sort of cover the movement and not necessarily, you know, elevate a lot of the figures. And I think that's been something that's happened over the last administration. As, as an aside, I was just talking with a colleague about uh, one of your colleagues, Charlie uh, Kevin Roos, who wrote a profile of Dan Bongino, which seemed like an obvious thing to do since he's incredibly influential, uh, uh, enormous reach on Facebook. And my colleague was like, well, I don't know why you would give this guy a platform. You know, he's, he's critical of journalists and threatening to journalists. Um, and I thought, well, of course you have to cover him. He's, he dominates Facebook. He's a, uh, he's a, he, he's, he's, he's someone you should cover. Is, uh, um, what is, what is the, perf- what is the smart way to cover a Dan Bongino or a MyPillow guy, especially when they're all over Fox and, the, and they are fully mainstream? Or am I missing a nuance here? There's a difference between a Dan Bongino and a Milo or a Cernovich. I, I, I agree with what Charlie was saying. I think the difference between someone like Roos, what Roos did in his story was that he's not giving Bongino necessarily a platform to opine about the current events and, and his view on Trump and, and, and whatever. He's telling the reader, you know, this guy is very popular on Facebook. This is the kind of content he's putting out. It's dishonest. And, and trying to get the heart of why he's so popular. And, and that's very different than, I think, early on when um, myself and I think you know, others would ask someone like Cernovich for their viewpoint as a representative of this right-wing media world. Um, that it has largely just evaporated because there is a recognition you don't want to give these bad faith actors platform and oxygen, which is what they really desire at the end of the day. I think it comes down to strategy versus, yeah, uh, versus sort of, you know, just opinions and views, right? Like if you're going to talk to Dan about, you know, what he's doing on Facebook, and I think what, what Kevin was was trying to do with that piece is, is like, what are you trying to build here? What are the motivations behind it? Not like, who is this in service of, you know, what are your takes on the, you know, on the election or the mainstream media? It's It's sort of like trying to understand their tactics in order to, you know, understand this media ecosystem. So Bongino is a Facebook character primarily, um, exists on other platforms, even before the the election and definitely after the election, the 2016 election, uh, enormous, we spent a lot of time complaining about Facebook and Twitter and to a lesser degree YouTube and what their responsibility was and what they should be doing uh, and endless news stories about so-and-so saying this outrageous thing and so-and-so being um, punished but not really punished. And and it I'm, even as I'm saying it, it's just sort of exhausted with that news story. But it also strikes me that, that, that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, however slowly, have gotten better at sort of at least forcing some of the the most odious people off center stage of their platforms, if not off them off them entirely. How would you guys grade the the platforms generally over the last four years in terms of trying to clean themselves up and and do a better job of policing themselves? I, I think that they have certainly done a little bit better. They've taken some baby steps, um, but I, I I wouldn't say they've done it a tremendous. Tremendous job. They've done pretty much the bare minimum given the public pressure on these platforms to work. You know, it, it just seems that, yes, for instance, they do label the president's account. Yes, they've taken action against someone like Alex Jones. But like 
should they really be getting a lot of credit for, you know, saying that Alex Jones, you know, who's running this conspiratorial news organization, you know, and, and, and um, pushing hate speech out on this platform that we're going to we're not going to allow you to do that anymore. Like, like that, that should have been a layup for these guys. Um, and I just, you know, I'm, I'm just on Twitter and Facebook all the time and I see stuff that is in clear violation of these platforms as um, standards. And it usually takes a journalist, you know, to say, hey, guys, what about this like Facebook video that's like at the top of Crowd Tangle? It's like one of the most engaged posts on Facebook. And then like after a few hours, a spokesperson will come back and say, you know, after review, we have determined that this wasn't violation of our standards. It's we- astonishing, right? They have the yeah. best and brightest working there. They have, they've in, uh, invested in all this AI and then they've hired thousands of humans on top of that to scour the platform for that. And, and like you say, there's a story almost every other day of someone from your organization or Bloomberg or the Times saying, what about this, this horrible thing? And then it goes away. seems like a very inefficient way to police your platform and maybe points out the problem of policing the platform in general. But if you, if you look at like how many, like Facebook is, you know, I don't know how many billion users they have. It's a, it's a very large platform. And if you look at how many moderators they have per person, I understand they have algorithms, but like in the U.S., for instance, I was just Googling this. There are like 15,000 police departments, local police departments throughout the U.S. who are, you know, patrolling the streets, making sure that crime, the law is enforced. Like how many, Charlie maybe knows exactly or has a rough ballpark, but there are not close to that amount of Facebook moderators, you know, as there are law enforcement officers in the U.S., uh, ensuring the law is followed. And, and, and you also have to keep in mind, too, that it's, it's a weird system, right? It's like, what if in the U.S., like, the only time the police enforce the law is when someone dialed 911? You know, what if we didn't have cops out on the street, patrolling the streets, uh, and making sure that people are following the law, or these uh, units doing investigations and saying, hey, this person looks a little suspicious, they've been doing some weird stuff, like, we should maybe pay attention to this account a little bit more and, and make sure that they're, everything's okay with this account, like that doesn't exist on these platforms, and so you're you're talking a massive, you know, you know, places with with millions and millions, billions of users, and you have um, a severely under um, understaffed department trying to keep up with this stuff. Uh, it just seems like there should be a lot more resources maybe put in by these billion dollar companies to monitoring some of the obvious accounts and obvious stuff um, that's being pushed out there. Um, but also, you know, it goes into a larger thing with like Facebook's uh, Supreme Court, so to speak, yeah. uh, and, and how you kind of uh, also ensure that people have confidence in the system that these that they're not just going to be banished, you know, without the chance to appeal in a in a fair way. Charlie, is this a resource thing or is this a structural thing? The platforms. Oh, I think oh, I know your answer. Yeah, you do. Uh, structural. Um, I you know I, I've I've had a really hard time with with talking about these platforms like you're you're uh not the first person to ask sort of like what's the what's the grade or or like you know how would you how would you evaluate the last four years and i just have a really difficult time with that i i i wrote a column in i want to say july sort of offhandedly saying that (laughs) facebook can't be reformed uh and and i I wrote it because I felt like I just don't, I, I don't really see any, like I'm so exhausted by the argument, by the sort of like, how, how do we do this? How do, what's the right amount of content moderators? What's the right amount of thing? What's the right amount of like, you know, where do you put the rules? How do you satisfy both, you know, uh, 
sort of free speech maximalists and those who ha- have a, you know a really good point in that some of these platforms are just in- incredibly dangerous um, and incubate really destabilizing forces and. I do think it's just it's structural. This is this is not an issue. Like we are going to tinker across the margins. These companies have done have actually moved mountains. You know, in 2015 terms, when I when I think about some of the things I wanted to see happen, just with enforcing the rules of the road uh, that they had set themselves, I I think that they have done that. They have igno- they have made acknowledgments. Like we're not really talking anymore about like is Facebook a media company? Is it a whatever? You know, like we're not really having those conversations because they are sort of being editors to some degree. They're they're you know um, they've they've done a lot and it's not enough because it's all tinkering on the margins of a platform that is governed by algorithms that influence incendiary content uh, and and benefit the most shameless actors. And Facebook is governed by a strategy that is essentially, you know, trying to be a relatively neutral arbiter and not really understanding that that neutrality can favor uh, the most shameless actors. I remember tweeting at you about that column and now we're podcasting about it. So this is as meta as it gets. And this is my question, which is a half trolley question, right? Like, let's say, let's say uh, all the platforms shut themselves down. Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and, and, and Sundar Pichai say, all right, we can't, we can't control this Frankenstein monster. We're just going to evaporate. It goes away. Um, the internet doesn't go away. Don't all of these get replaced with not necessarily a, a new Facebook, but doesn't all of the sort of bad impulse of, of, of bad actors and even people who aren't bad actors, doesn't that all still sort of make its way out into the internet? What's, what's, and maybe aren't we better off with people at least trying to corral this stuff in, in sort of a centralized place instead of letting it just spread out everywhere? I think what you're what you're getting at is the question is sort of the the next turn of the screw. You know, a lot of people sort of have been musing around what is what is sort of the next part of this, right? What is what does this story look like in a Biden era? Uh, what does it look like, you know, Trump, Trump in winter at Mar-a-Lago? And I, I think a lot of people have turned to, which is where I'm kind of turning myself to this supply versus demand side of like the disinformation, the, you know, the hate speech, the uh, destabilizing online content story. And I think we have focused so much on the supply, right? On the, on the platforms that help sort of, you know, pump it out and, and amplify it and the people all the influencers and the, you know, the media outlets that, that supply it. And we're not talking as much about the demand side of this, the, you know, the idea that there is actually a really durable alternate reality that exists that needs to feed off of this kind of content that wants it, that desires it, that, um, and without sort of going into like the classic hackneyed, like talk to Trump voters in the diner kind of thing. I think there's a way in which we can talk about, you know, bigger structural forces in society that lead people to want to embrace conspiracies, to want to embrace these alternate realities that have led to all this, you know, destabilizing political hyperpartisanship. So I think that's sort of the next level of this. And that sort of speaks to this idea of like, no, if you if you get rid of Facebook and all these other things, like other this is this is not a um this is not merely just a 
a company, a corporate problem. This is a, a American and, and like global societal issue that we're seeing. Oliver, what, uh, this is a, a good question for you. Um, we have seen a whole series of stories over the last year about ah, ever, all these people are leaving Twitter and they're going to their own new conservative uh, social network. And sometimes it's Gab and then it's Parler and then you have a TV version of it, OAN and Newsmax. Do any of these sort of alternate uh, platforms have a real chance of sort of reaching a, a critical mass where they're meaningful or are they literally just a place for those people who've been deplatformed to go and, and hang out and sort of talk to each other? Um, I think it, I think it's too early to tell, to be honest. Uh, I thought about that question before coming on. And like the one big question everyone wants to know right now is it will Newsmax's ratings, you know, hold? Will Greg Kelly be able to pull that 700,000 to 1, 1 million viewers in a night, you know, uh, five months from now, six months from now? That's it's, I think it, it's, it's just too early to tell. I could see a world where he does really well and he has carved out a place for himself on Newsmax and OAN and these others, Parler, uh, continue to to do pretty well and people go to them for, for this really high dose of right-wing media. Um, but I could also see a world where, you know, the establishment, the foxes of the world kind of pull their audience back now that Biden is going into administration. There's going to be a lot of anti-democratic stories, anti-media stories that are going to they're going to be hooked on. So I, I could see it going both ways. I know that's not an answer maybe, but maybe in six months we'll uh, come back and have better insights. I'm reflexively skeptical of all these. I just assume that that it's it's much harder. to. It's easy to literally build a Twitter, right? Because you can just a bulletin board. Uh, it's, a, it's another thing to sort of have enough people there to make it meaningful. Uh, mm-hmm. Newsmax has been around for a long time. I, 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 it's hard for me to imagine a significant portion of the Fox audience going there and staying there. Um, but I'm always happy to be wrong. Or I'm frequently wrong, let's put it that way. It doesn't take that. I mean, I know a lot of people, like I think Fox, some, some anonymous source uh, to the New York Times from Fox said that Newsmax doesn't have the infrastructure that we do. Like, it doesn't really take that much infrastructure to set up a talk show and have a guy giving off his opinions. Like, it's, it's pretty much a camera. You know, mm-hmm. Newsmax has a basic set. It's, it's not like a lot of infrastructure. It's not like Fox News is like CNN, where we have bureaus around the world and journalists and countries everywhere. And it, it, Fox is, is pretty much a, a running talk show as it is right now. It's a, it's a visual form of talk radios the best way probably to describe it. So can Newsmax create that? I think they can. I think it's dependent on finding the right personalities, right? They have Greg Kelly, who's hosting um, a pretty entertaining show, if that's what you're looking for, this right-wing election denialism. So, you know, he's doing well in the ratings. I think a lot of the other rest of the lineup is not as strong in terms of personalities and talent, so they're not doing as well. Um, It's not necessarily, to me, an infrastructure thing. Um, and, and if I had to bet, I would say that there's a much better chance of Newsmax continuing to do at least better than they were before the election. Maybe it's not. Maybe Greg Kelly doesn't get that million viewers a night uh, a year from now, but maybe he's pulling 300,000, 400,000. That's still a lot better than where he was two, three months ago when he was lucky to have 100,000 people watching his show. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe there's a happy medium between. Are they going to rival Fox and beat Fox? No, but... Maybe they're still going to be doing a lot better than they were uh, before November, you know, November election. 
And Charlie, what do you think about the 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 the, the digital version of this, the the parlors or gabs or or social network to be named later? Um, like, there's an obvious problem they have, which is the the libs aren't there, so you can't trigger them. It's not as fun. But is there an audience there that will move there and stay there? I I so. I'm I'm sort of of the mind that I mean I, it, it'll exist to some degree, right? It, all these all these sort of unfettered free speech networks always run into those two problems, right? One, the libs aren't there, like you said. Two, <laughs> like the unmitigated free speech thing tends to work for a little while until like somebody's like, well, this is the best place to put you know all of my crime scene photos, right? Or like you know my my mm-hmm. my you know unabashed. Uh, 10,000 page Nazi rants, whatever it is, like that only works until it becomes like a true cesspool in which, you know, people who are, you know, sort of on the, on, on the margins, like, you know, people who had big audiences on other platforms are like, this is too toxic. I can't be associated with this. And then they go away. So it's, you know, right, can you go they from 4chan to balance? HN to 8kun. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, right. I, and I also, they're by the way, they're, they're not great, they're not great businesses, right? They're, they're advertisers don't generally want to hang out there. Uh, you, you can maybe find a, a hedge fund person to to promote them for a while, but they're not self-sustaining businesses. Right. They all kind of go back to the sort of like, you know, the buy gold sponsors or things like that, or like re- ready, ready-made, um, you know, prepper meals, things like that. I, I think the biggest problem, though, is this idea that like this ecosystem is fueled by conflict and Parler does not have that conflict. And I think that that's, that's just going to be really difficult. I mean, if you can actually manufacture a 24-7 Trump rally, right, where there's just like an electric atmosphere, sort of like a, you know, like a, like a carnival slash rock concert slash big tent revival that just sort of makes you feel like, you know, the mega culture is the dominant one, then yes, there is a strategy for that to that, you know, that that can that can sustain. But I think that that, I don't know that that really translates on the internet, the internet seems to be driven by, you know, stoking the culture wars and feuding. And I don't think you can really recreate that. So we spent very little time talking about Donald Trump in this sort of Trump wrap up uh, uh, podcast. Um, He's not going away. He won't be president in January. Uh, He's not going to live forever, uh, although he seems to be astonishingly resilient for someone who doesn't exercise uh, and is obese and has had the virus. So first of all, in the near term, um, what what is the Donald Trump character? What is what is his role in January when he's no longer president and can't threaten war with North Korea or can't threaten GM with a tweet? And then beyond that, you know, where does this ecosystem go without Donald Trump, who will no longer at some point he just won't be with us, right? However many years that is. Um, so we're going to do some some forecasting slash wish casting. I'll, I'll take a crack at uh, so one. I think. Trump has has not he, he's been sort of the entire time he's been in office he's sort of treated his Twitter account and even when he does interviews is like he's like an outsider commenting on like the administration you know so I don't know if his role changes too much like from what we can tell you know his public schedule he's not really doing much right now except just tweeting angrily about the mm-hmm. election and retweeting conspiracy theories so but he won't you know, he won't generate the same kind of coverage though. But you see, I mean, I'm not really sure he's generating a lot of coverage uh, in terms of like his tweeting and, and whatnot now. I mean, it's it's. It, it, I think a lot of the country wants to move on, frankly, mm-hmm. and we're going to see that maybe um, 
it change a little bit, you know, after January 20th and, and, and maybe even more, there'll be less coverage of him. But it, it does feel like he's just kind of like crazy on Twitter. And I don't, I don't even, I don't even read his tweets. Like I just saw one where he suggested Kemp should be maybe locked up. He retweeted someone saying that uh, Lim Wood. Right. We finally like, exhausted the point where 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 we, where those things don't get covered. But again, I think it's because right. we've all come to the conclusion that he he just had you know no one is listening to him. Uh, no one in power is listening to him. It just doesn't. I mean, the president of the United States, just to be clear, retweeted a call for him to imprison the governor, the Republican governor of Georgia, for not going on with his election conspiracy theories, and like. I barely saw that. Like, you know, it, it's it's just to that point. It's no, it's just a feat of nonsense. By and the so, same token, there's the, uh, however many hundred, you know, hundred plus uh, uh, Congress people signed on to the, this ridiculous lawsuit calling for the election right. to be overturned, well, which is a, a gesture meant to appease him, right? And I think that might go to his stranglehold on like right wing media and just you know his influence. Like, I'm not sure. I guess like. And what's the best way to say this? I think that the serious people in the, in, the, in the real world will probably not pay much as much attention to him post office because I think it is, what he's saying just doesn't matter. But when he, he does have a big following in the right-wing media universe and the GOP world, and so when he does you know, say, I'm going to go after Kemp, that might hurt him in Republican politics. So uh, I guess the best way to say this is in the real world, I'm not sure – his, his tweeting matters anymore, but in the Republican world where people might be vying for his endorsement or where um, he might have influence, uh, it, it, I think he's still going to be pretty relevant and he's still going to be a big media figure. And even if he's not around Donald Trump Jr. and this whole ecosystem he's given birth to, uh, there are a lot of errors to that throne. Do you think that transfers that that he, that that, that uh, Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka and 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 his real or or you know? Uh, ideological heirs have that kind of influence. It's it's hard for me to imagine. It seems like he's a very specific character, and that and that won't transfer. I don't know. I think I, th I think there's been a lot of personalities. Maybe it is not a clear single heir, but there are a lot. There are like multiple. It's kind of like the Avengers. Maybe you know there are a lot of different characters that the space loves. And <laughs> see Charlie laughing. Uh, and so um, yeah, I, I think I think there are plenty of people that can carry that mantle forward. It'll be interesting to see who that one person might be. And, and Donald Trump Jr., I don't think we should underestimate him. He's hugely popular. He's been traveling the country uh, throughout the election season and previous to the midterms, and the crowds love him. He has a big social media presence. He's you know, connected with everyone in right-wing media. I, I think you know, people should take him, to some extent, seriously as a political force. So you think Trump and Trump surrogates remain, stick around, Trump remains powerful, but not as powerful. And you think at some point when Donald Trump no longer lives, that's a terrible way of putting it, there will be some sort of successor to Donald Trump that sort of keeps this thing going, um, that it doesn't die with him. Yeah, I definitely think that Trumpism is something that's here to stay. Um, and whether it's a member of his family that takes the reins um, or if it's uh, someone else or multiple figures, it just it just does not seem... Like it's going anywhere. It's sort of redefining conservatism. It's it's no longer Reagan conservatism. It's it's Trumpism that defines the Republican Party. And until something else comes along, it's hard to see them going back to um, to what it was before, which was a more traditional, you know, strong national security, low taxes, 
um, conservative social issues. It's it, it's changed a lot since since then. It's um, you know it's harder to find what it is exactly, but it's certainly not that old school conservatism. So we, we watched the Obama administration really struggle with Fox News and and the conservative media ecosystem that existed then. Um, they certainly sort of didn't uh, have a good handle on what was going on. Um, in terms of the the disinformation that was coming up on the internet uh, at the end of 2016, um, or through the 2016 campaign, uh, the Biden campaign is Biden administration was able to sort of watch this for four years. Um, the Biden campaign was often criticized for being slow uh, on the internet for not sort of getting it. Um, you know, some of the some of the efforts they did make seem cheesy, you know, like a, a Fortnite map or a or a, a, a Animal Crossing uh, a mod. Do you think that they've got some sort of grip on sort of how to handle Trumpism, Trump ecosystem, conservative media? It looks like you're shaking your head. I, I just don't. Stumble through I mean, it. I don't. I think their main strategy is to ignore that this alternate universe, this fantasy universe exists. That seems to be their strategy, and that they hope they can deal in the real world and they can just kind of brush this other side. That strategy worked during the campaign, right? That was ultimately It certainly successful. netted him the election. Um, you know, it was still pretty close. I feel mm-hmm. like you know he has a he won a good margin in terms of the electoral college. But if you look at the individual states, it's not like this was like some you know uh, it was still pretty close. And you can imagine it have maybe swung another direction. Um, but like I, I just I just when I look at what's going on in the country and the information crisis that we face. It does not seem that most people, including Biden and and the national leadership, understand exactly how bad this is. And I think these people should all have to listen to, you know, a few hours of Rush Limbaugh a week, some of Sean Hannity and and Fox, and and, and really just understand what it's doing to the country. Um, I listen to Limbaugh occasionally. And when you listen to the callers calling in, they really think the Democrats are are aligned with the devil, right? That they are evil people, that there are these pedophilia rings that are connected to the deep state. Like a good portion of this country has had their mind absolutely corrupted and poisoned by the content they've consumed on Facebook for years, by these algorithms on YouTube, by Fox News, by talk radio, and so on and so forth. And it doesn't seem like we are really dealing or grappling in a real way with the fact that, that this, is, this is going on. It's our, it's our neighbors. It's people that we see in the grocery store. There are a lot of people out there that are not, no longer tethered to reality. And they might be you know, nice and we might just be like, oh, that's crazy Uncle Joe at the, at the family gathering or whatever. Um, not, not Joe Biden, but you know, just crazy mm-hmm. Uncle Joe. <laughs> but like, at some point, we have to stop dismissing dismissing this and just like pretending it doesn't exist. Like It's funny. I, I did that out of college in the mid-90s. I listened to Rush Limbaugh because I wanted to get a sense of what was going on. And they were consumed with with Vince Foster, uh, his murder, and, and, and the horrible things the Clintons were doing. And that seemed unhinged then um, and now seems, you know, pretty mild. Uh, compared right. to where to what we have today, so we know that they're going to struggle with this. Um, it seems like a very important real world test is going to be the vaccine rollout. 
um, where you've got a lot of people, not necessarily people who are part of the conservative ecosystem, who have questions, who are skeptical about the vaccine, who may have well-founded fears about the vaccine, and a lot of people who are just soaking up disinformation. Does anything give you sort of optimism that we're going to be able to handle this, that that the smart, you know, we had brilliant people who were able to come up with a vaccine in less than a year. Um, do we have people who are going to be able to sort of message the importance of the vaccine and, and, and how and why we should do this? Or are we kind of screwed? Um, I go back and forth on this one, to be honest. I, I look at, I, I just generally think most people want to go back to normal. And so the vaccine is the quickest route. And, and so I think most people will end up taking it, but we really are early on in the rollout. And there is this world where I can see, you know, someone gets a bad side effect or, you know, it's going to happen. There's, you know, when you roll out a vaccine program this big and the platforms are really built to amplify that at the same, you know, rate, if not higher than like, the millions of people who are going to get it successfully, yes. right? Which, so, by like, the way, can, that's that's just news in general, right? Of sure. course, you're going to focus on on the plane that crashes as opposed to the many planes that don't crash. Right. The only difference is that while NBC News on the nightly news might say, you know, caveat it and say this is an isolated incident, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to now have these these blogs that are going to get thousands of thousands of shares and they're going to say, is this connected to the deep state, uh, you know, Bill Gates chip that's supposedly in this thing. And, 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 it, and it's, it takes on a different life now, I think, than it did maybe if it would happening 30 years ago, um, where you had at least a, a pretty responsible news media articulating this information. And, and, and something that bothers me to some extent is that people do mostly like, you know, they do mostly get their news on Facebook. And so while, you know, um, there, the mainstream media, I'm sure, will be very responsible um, for the most part talking about the vaccine. Uh, it, it does feel like, and, and I'm sure Facebook will put a little label on it and they'll have a thing at the top of the dashboard, vaccine dashboard. It does feel like there are all these loopholes that are going to be exposed. Um, I was watching a Candace Owens video, for instance, recently, and she was saying, you know, it was anti-vaccine um, video for like a few minutes and she was talking about why she should get the vaccine and, and, and really kind of casting doubt and just, you know, not saying that Bill Gates is putting microchips in people, but saying quite literally, you know, like, um, how do you guys feel about these Bill Gates conspiracy theories and just floating this stuff? Right. And that, you know, uh, my colleague checked and that that's totally okay with Facebook. Like she's, and you she's, think that's quite intentional on her part that she knows course, what she's yeah, doing, that she is, she knows where the line is and she can walk up to it. Exactly. She knows that she articulates a Bill Gates conspiracy theory. Um, she's going to get fact-checked or that video is going to be taken down. But there is a, you know, what do you think about this Bill Gates, you know, vaccine stuff? You know, and what do you think about his connections to George Soros? And, you know, you can really get up to that line and it doesn't seem like platforms are equipped to deal with that. And my, the last point I'll make as well is um, before COVID, there was a lot of pressure on Facebook and Instagram uh, and, and YouTube to crack down on vaccine misinformation. And um, I remember Facebook and Instagram, just despite all this public pressure, despite all the reporting, having significant difficulty really cracking down on it. And they were saying stuff like it can't happen overnight. You know, we have to do all this stuff. And I saw the statement that came out from Facebook, um, was it last week or the week before, where they also said these changes you know, won't happen overnight. 
as if they haven't had months and months and months of time to prep for this very moment, right, where uh, it's going to be so important to not amplify nonsense from vaccine truthers. And, and they're now still saying, you know, this can't happen overnight. So it doesn't leave with me a lot of confidence that, that they're That was be... confusing, right? And also similarly confusing, you know, after the election, they said, all right, we're doing this break glass thing where we're going to really crack down on disinformation and we're going to make it much harder uh, to, to spread this stuff around. And the thought was, well, why not do that in advance if you know how to do that? And I guess the thought is... Um, they, if they do, if 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 they use the break glass option all the time, then Facebook isn't Facebook, and that was kind of an admission on their part that they can only do this sort of in in very specific emergencies. They can't do it all the time, right? And it, it's sort of like it, it, I think this has caused confusion to some extent as well because you have Facebook and and Twitter and uh, in YouTube, they'll attach labels now to um, COVID misinformation and election misinformation, but you know, you're still free to lie about pretty much everything else with no labels, right? And so now you have bad faith actors who constantly point out, like, why isn't Facebook fact-checking this? Why isn't Twitter fact-checking this from the Chinese government or, you know, from from so-and-so? They, they always fact-check Trump. And it, the truth is, they don't always fact-check Trump. They only fact-check him on the things he cares about right now the most, which is the election. But it's allowed also bad faith actors to kind of expose um, or, or, or exploit this for their own purposes. And it's just not a consistent system. And when you have inconsistencies like this, especially glaring inconsistencies on how you enforce rules and what information is okay to lie about and what information is not okay to lie about, it creates all sorts of problems. Oliver, it's the end of the year. It's been a shitty year. Can you give me something positive to hang on to? What what, what makes you feel good when you look at uh, the way the media uh, has, has performed over the last four years? Um, you know, it has been a, it has been a bad year, I do think, you know, the one good thing about the Trump era is it has kind of revealed everyone to, to, you know, everyone to who they are in that, like, before the election, Fox said they're fair and balanced. We know now that they are a right wing cable network. We know who the people, um, the character of so many Republicans in Congress, the people who had the courage to speak out and say that this is reality. Trump lost and the, 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 the ones who did not, who are willing to sign on to this effort. Um, I just feel like at the end of the day, Trump revealed the character of, of everyone, and um, that includes members of the news media as well. And, um, you know, it, and not to say that he was a net positive on the country, obviously, but I think that one thing, however unintentional as it may have been, has really been good and clarifying. So we know where everyone stands. We know who the hacks are. We know who the people who have courage are. And without Trump, you know, I'm not really sure we would, we would uh, have the knowledge. It's a stretch, but I asked for something positive and, and, and you did your best. Oliver, thank you so much. Uh, Charlie, you can't hear me because your internet doesn't work, but thank you for joining us as well. Thanks again to Charlie and Oliver for coming on and Charlie for braving through the, the terrible Wi-Fi. Thanks to Mike Isaac for also coming on earlier in the show. Thanks to Joel and Jelani who edit and produce this show. Thanks to our sponsors who bring this show to you for free. And thanks to you guys for listening. I love it when you listen. I love it when you tell me that you listen. If you want, you can tell someone else that they should listen, which some of you do. I see it on Twitter, and I'm very appreciative of it. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.